My voice sounds funny because I have a bad head cold coming out of the pandemic, took the mask off. I hope this is not our future. Please bear with me. It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with our cast of regulars for the first time in weeks. Laura Johnston, Jane Cahoon, Layla Tassi. Good Monday morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Let's begin. What's the big plan that the Cleveland Browns owners have put together for lakefront access and development, and how much would it cost? Layla Tassi, I don't know how many different lakefront plans we've seen roll across our desks over the Seriously. past 20 years. This one is pretty pretty advanced in the way it thinks, but again, it's a lot of money. It is. Uh, so this idea for the project came from Cleveland Browns owners Jimmy and Dee Haslam, who approached Mayor Frank Jackson and suggested a planning group explore ways to develop this signature lakefront for Cleveland. Uh, that's this obviously, as you said, plan after plan after plan, discussion for years. But this proposal is for an elevated lakefront park that stretches above the railroad lines and the shoreway. And it has this long kind of gradually sloping the way Bob Higgs described it is a green ribbon about 350 feet wide that would connect Mall C downtown to North Coast Harbor in the land near First Energy Stadium. And it, it includes green space on the 30 acres around the stadium and, and room for housing and commercial development. It would really aim to kind of tie together the Great Lakes Science Center, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and Museum, the stadium, and then, you know, any new housing and retail and hotels, all of the lakefront assets, really. And so the land bridge would end east of the stadium and north of the Great Lakes Science Center near where the NFL draft's main stage was set up. That north end is envisioned as kind of a balcony view of Lake Erie with room for public space to be built underneath. And there would be a terrace and a place for kayakers to access the lake. The, the renderings are, are just really lovely. Cle Cleveland has applied for uh, applied to the Ohio Department of Transportation for, for $5.6 million for the initial design work. And the city would put up $2.5 million toward the design and we should know this summer if they got that money. But the overall cost is high. The project is is estimated to be in the ballpark of $229 million. And Cleveland would be applying for money from the state and potentially tap into federal dollars earmarked for in infrastructure improvements in the future. Well, I mean, you could argue that that really when you look at what this could do to give access to our biggest asset, which we don't have, mm -hmm. you know, is it high relatively? The biggest thing, and Steve Litt analyzed this a bit, is mm -hmm. they want to close the shoreway ramp down by the stadium, which would change the commute for West Siders. And as Steve That's pointed right. out, the cranky West Siders <laughs> were the reason that that whole boulevard concept for the West Side shoreway got trashed and we don't have what the original vision for that was uh i i don't know well would would people fight so hard just to keep that entrance ramp there it's a it's a hairy ramp to begin with it's, it, it's not the safest place to get on a shoreway right right you know and, and steve's column also pointed out that this this project can't just end up being a gold coast for cleveland elite it has to be done with equity top of mind including affordable housing and, and, and possibly a school and it should provide opportunities for minority and female-owned businesses. And so, you know, th th there will be time for public feedback. And so it's going to be just fascinating to see how all of that pours into the what eventually comes of this new proposal. Do, do the Browns own any land down there? Or they, That's a they're good just question. The, they were, I mean, they know they lease the stadium from 
the city. And so they have an interest in making the lakefront nice because it's the home of the Browns. But um, I just, if they're not developers, if they're just doing the plan, they're spending a lot of money to. That's get right. They're are they're in for a million dollars so far, right? Isn't that isn't that what uh, we've reported? Yeah, yeah. And I'm I'm trying to. I mean, the benefit to them is if that became beautiful, it's a better home for the Browns. Maybe they sell right. more tickets. But I don't I don't think they own land. I could be wrong. We should figure that out. You are listening to this week in the CLE. What does Ohio Governor Mike DeWine's lifting of his mask mandate for vaccinated people mean, practically speaking? Well, Jane Coon, I can tell you from personal experience, it means we're going to get head colds. <laughs> I was just going to say, you need to wear a mask, Chris, any, anywhere you go right now, because you're Jeremy. But um, yeah, DeWine's decision really was just, it, it followed what the CDC said last week, and it was in line with that, that fully vaccinated people don't have to wear a mask, except when in certain situations, like crowded indoor settings, uh, so and, and they they're still going to be required in healthcare settings when people are traveling, like on airplanes or on public transportation, or you know businesses can still choose to require masks. Um, and of course, unvaccinated people should still wear masks. And this is where things could get maybe dicey or at least a little confusing, but we've seen an immediate result of this with a bunch of local and national retailers already relaxing their mask policies or getting ready to do that. And others are still kind of contemplating this, but, you know, for example, we've got stores like Walmart and Costco already not requiring masks for vaccinated people, but, you know, they're, they don't seem to be verifying whether people are vaccinated. So I, I think uh, as I was uh, listening last week while I was on vacation to you guys on the podcast, you know, you were talking about some of the confusion uh, about all of this that, you know, we still have kids under 12 who don't qualify for the vaccine. So that makes it difficult for their parents, you know, deciding whether or not to, to mask. And, you know, um, I, I think it also, you know, people who are anti-vaccine might also be anti-mask. So I don't know, you know, that, that I think that's the worry here, that how do you know who's vaccinated and well, who's not? You, you know? don't. I mean, so really the practical effect is the only people who are going to wear masks are those who want to wear masks. If you don't want to wear a mask, you'll just claim I'm vaccinated. There's no passport. So suddenly... Yeah. Yeah. It's it's out there. I it'll be I was surprised that the retailers that immediately did that. Others like Home Depot said, no, we're not lifting it. But I have a feeling that by the end of this week or next week, that'll be the rule. Nobody's going to. Yeah. And that. on June 2nd, as we know, DeWine uh, is lifting everything he, he announced last week. So, yeah, we'll have to see how that goes. Except for nursing homes and long term care facilities, I think. Yeah. Well, and this. This ahead, is Laura. Laura Johnston. We'll have to see if, you know, the numbers have been lower now. I think um, Sunday's number was 600 something new cases. It's the lowest it's been in uh, nine months or so. So we'll have to see whether these numbers in two weeks go back up or not. Um, I think that'll be interesting. I mean, we are going into summer where people are outside. Obviously, you're exponentially safer there, which makes me feel a lot better about the mask mandate being lifted um, with kids around. But um yeah, there's still a whole lot of unknowns. We don't know how this is going to affect every business or organizations or I feel like everybody finally put their summer plans in place with all of these safety measures. Do they just like throw up their hands and be like, never mind, we're back to normal. 
Well, the other thing is, while DeWine is lifting all of his orders, he's not lifting his state of pandemic emergency right. that allows cities to gouge us for income taxes. I don't get that. That's one where if the legislature comes to that deadline in June, just lift that because that's taking money out of people's pockets. And, and they really could not explain the logic there. We're lifting all of the restrictions, but it's still an emergency. And so emergency things stay in place. I, this is Leila Tassi, though. Does this would lifting the the emergency uh, mean that would it affect our eligibility for federal stimulus dollars or or no? That's a good question. Maybe that's why he's keeping it in. Mm-hmm. But of course, he he's willing to let lots of unemployment money go out of the state yeah, for right. the uh, stimulus. We're calculating how much money he's sucking out of the Ohio economy by turning down that three hundred dollars. That was just free money for our economy that people were spending in the state. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Do experts believe the Vaximillion lottery in Ohio will work? And we should also talk about whether they believe the scholarship lottery will work. Laura Johnston, I, I was surprised. They they actually were optimistic, more optimistic, I think, with the scholarship than with the, the lottery for adults. Maybe because the scholarship seems less pie in the sky. I mean, there are fewer kids age 12 to 17 in Ohio than there are adults, you know, 18 and over. But um, yeah, Laura Hancock talked to experts in finance, health-related consumer behavior, vaccine hesitancy, game theory, and behavioral economics. So really a huge spectrum there. And they pretty much think it's going to work. There's even some numbers that this is going to increase the number of hesitant Ohioans to get vaccinated by three to 8%, which you're like, that's that's not a very, very big percentage. But when you're talking millions of people, then you're at least getting thousands of people vaccinated. Then the question was, is this a good use of the $5 million? You know, could we be spending it on public health campaigns to educate people and really move the needle even more than just like dangling some money in front of people and saying, maybe you can get this. Um, and, And there's this idea of reactants, which is the phenomenon that people who feel their freedom is threatened, which causes them to resist social influence. So this could turn off some people who are on the fence. But um, yeah, we'll have to see if if the vaccination numbers start jumping up. With the scholarships, obviously the parents play a huge role in this and, and, uh, you know, pediatricians that they trust. So they thought that this would be some kind of incentive for people. Well, th- we've all seen the public relations ads that the state put out. They were kind of goofy, right? And they paid money to put those on television and other places. This is a similar kind of marketing campaign. It just uses a different strategy. Absolutely. And, you know, $5 million is pretty small when you look at all of the stimulus money that's coming to the state. So maybe they're kind of like, well, we'll try it. It's worth a try. It'll be really interesting to see if another state takes this tactic, because when it was announced, it was national news. So are we going to see another state that say, hey, we're following Ohio's example, but we're going to give out, you know, ten, five hundred thousand dollars $500,000. I don't know. You know, the, they could the, play with all sorts of numbers. The first drawing is what, a week from today, the 23rd? I think. Yeah, so, so. they're going to be Wednesdays, every Wednesday for a week at 7.30 p.m. All right. So it'll be interesting to see if, as we get closer to that deadline, whether the vaccination rates improve as people want to get their their feet in the door. The sites where people can register their kids and the kids can register, that's not up yet, right? That's going up in a couple of days. I haven't seen the site. The state said they were working on it. I hope it's a better site than they're like, <laughs> you know, get the shot.com. Can I jump in here? Jane this Cahoon. Is Jane Cahoon. Um, he's having a, DeWine's having a uh, briefing today with the Lottery Commission and Department of Health this morning to uh, outline the specifics of the 
lottery. Maybe this time when he does his briefing, he can go around the state where he visits with people. You know, they have cameras around the state and talk to the people that are losing the $300 a week in the unemployment he took away. That would be an interesting set of conversations to hear from. John Houston could be visiting with them and let them talk about that. I don't think that's the kind of thing we'll see. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What is Stimulus Watch? Layla Tassi, this is all yours. (laughs) <laughs> what stimulus watch only the biggest watchdog reporting project of the year chris <laughs> our so our colleague robin goist who until now had been doing just a terrific job covering news in akron uh is taking this on for the next couple of years as as millions of dollars flow into state and county and local governments from the american rescue plan federal the federal stimulus package she'll be tracking every dollar spent in northeast ohio communities including cleveland which is just poised to receive about a half billion dollars a lot of the cities have already announced the kinds of projects that they hope to tackle with this money and all of them are making this pledge that it'll be invested in ways that lead to sustainable change rather than simply you know kind of the day-to-day business of of government or patching holes in the budget but that's exactly what robin is going to be watching for So, for example, in Cleveland, the ideas for spending the funds include expanding programs to uplift neighborhoods or demolish deteriorating homes or assisting residents with financing to purchase homes and encouraging private investment in in housing and business startups. And in Cleveland Heights, the nearly 39 million that they'll be receiving could be used to meet some of the requirements of a federal consent decree over violations of the Clean Water Act. Uh, So Robin will be paying very close attention to every contract awarded on stimulus projects. Tomorrow, her second installment of the project will take a look at why some cities are receiving less money than was initially projected. So, for example, Cleveland will be getting $30 million less than we had been told and were reporting for months. So she'll explain the funding formulas and why those projections didn't quite match up with the actual allocations. I'm super excited about this. Went, right? Yeah, well, we'll yeah, out. yeah. It's kind of hard to to, to see exactly, but it's uh, um, but it's 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 interesting to to find out how how exactly they made these decisions and uh, and why it just didn't pan out the way we we thought it would. Thirty million is a, is a lot. <laughs> you know, we talked last week about the the lack of vision that we felt they had that Cleveland had and its use for the money. It felt same old, same old. It will be interesting as. This money is spent nationwide to see if there are cities that come up with some life-changing ways to spend the money. It's not just the money coming to Ohio. Every city is getting it. And so far, we really have not heard the big idea. Anyway, it's a great project. I got very good feedback from readers about it. They're glad we're doing it. They had actually uh, told me earlier in the year they hoped we would do it. And so Robin is the raring to go. Uh, she was trying to start early. I mean, she kept coming <laughs> Can I start Monday? Can I start Monday? Right, <laughs> yeah. We'll get there. We'll get there. So it'll be fun. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Who is the Northeast Ohio congressman who was the first Republican in Congress to lead an effort that could legalize marijuana? Jane Cahoon, I've just been fascinated with this story involving our congressman. Yeah, that's Dave Joyce of Geauga County. He's a, he's a former county prosecutor. And in recent years, he's really been a champion of medical marijuana. He co-chairs, in fact, the Congressional Cannabis Caucus. And this new effort that he's leading, you know, would remove marijuana from the list of federally 
controlled substances, and it would allow the Department of Veterans Affairs to prescribe medical cannabis to veterans. Uh, it would also direct the federal government to regulate the cannabis industry as it already regulates alcohol. So we've talked about this before, how there are barriers to cannabis businesses to that, that can't utilize traditional you know, the traditional banking system. And it, it would also, um, this bill that he's introduced with another Republican, Don Young of Alaska, would also, you know, remove those barriers. Uh, but Joyce is kind of coming at this, you know, he wants veterans to have access to marijuana for pain control, which he says is preferable to more addictive drugs like opioids. And his position on this, interestingly, you know, was not only influenced by his time as a prosecutor, but also from watching his his father die of cancer. And I thought he articulated this really well when he said, you can give people, you know, all the opioids and morphine that they want, but then God forbid they give them any cannabis, which might have settled their stomach and allowed them to have a decent meal, you know, and he said, I'm not a doctor, you know, I'm not trying to play a doctor, but, you know, he thinks research has to be done to show what this is good for. And if it's medically preferred, you know, it certainly would be better than the, you know, this opioid crisis and epidemic that we've been, we've been living through. Well, it would also get rid of the mixed message we have with federal and state law. State after state is legalized marijuana or medical marijuana, and the users in those states are all technically in violation of federal law. It's not enforced, but the, but the law is on the books, and there needs to be uniformity between the federal law and the state law. And, you know, congratulations to Joyce for fighting to do this. He's he's you're right. He's a former prosecutor. He knows about marijuana. He's prosecuted cases involving marijuana. Uh, and he seems like he has an enlightened view. And it's yeah. not normally what you see a Republican do. Right. And he, you know, he thinks this bill can win bipartisan support, unlike some of the other bills that have been sponsored by Democrat, Democrats that I think he thinks they went too far and that this one could really get the bipartisan support. Interestingly, even though it's about uniformity, it would respect states' rights and allow them to keep it illegal if they want. Uh, but those that want to legalize it would be able to set up their own state-level framework for for uh, marijuana distribution, you know, just like, as we said, alcohol regulations. Right. Okay, you're listening to This Week in the CLE. Is Congressman Anthony Gonzalez letting his Republican colleagues who censured him bother him? If not, what's he doing to ignore it? Laura Johnston, this came up in an interview he did, of all things, on our Buckeye Talk podcast, Talking Football. Right, absolutely. And he credits football to allowing him to block out that chatter that he says it just he says it's just noise that he keeps his head down and just does the job even though you know the republicans are censuring him and calling for his resignation because he voted to uh impeach trump so he says i'm trying to enact a legislation that's going to make our community and our country better and stronger when i'm in this job i'm thinking about how do we make ourselves more competitive competitive against China? How do I make sure that we get better jobs, more jobs in Northeast Ohio? And so he's, he's talking about very concrete things about his job, and he's just not letting his colleagues bother him. He's only 36 years old, but he seems pretty mature for a, a congressperson. Yeah, he, he seems like 
a future strong leader and i will see i just don't think these petty attempts to to derail him are going to work i think people see in him a true leader i mean ted dieden wrote it i mean our arch conservative columnist wrote a column over the weekend defending him and calling out the republicans for attacking one of their own that way Absolutely. And um, Gonzalez won re-election in 2020 with 64 percent of the vote. Um, he will face a 2022 primary challenge. And he, he was kind of like, OK, you get your say in an election. So bring it on. That's where you can you can use your voice. Yeah. And we'll have to see whether the Trump effect still carries forward into next could year. I, could I jump in here for a second? Jane Cahoon. <laughs> you know, he's going to have a different district next year because of redistricting. So mm -hmm. I just wonder what kind of havoc the Republicans might wreak, you know, with his his district that could make things more difficult for him or not. You know, you just will just have to see. Or maybe the Republicans in Columbus will become enlightened and recognize <laughs> he's a future leader and work to give him a award he can win. We'll see. Unicorns. You're, yeah. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why do civil rights advocates argue that convicted felons seeking parole have a right to see statements about the parole applications by victims of their crimes? Leila Tassi, I often think the ACLU takes on good causes, but I'm not sure about this one. Yeah, this is uh, highly controversial. So the ACLU and the Ohio Justice and Policy Center have filed suit against the, the Ohio Department of Corrections and the Parole Board, arguing that confidential letters written by family members of victims strip inmates of their right to challenge the contents of those letters and could unfairly stand in the way of their release from prison. The lawsuit cites the cases of these two inmates who were convicted of murder, uh, who the board had initially decided were suitable for release. In one case, the board voted eight to zero to release this one inmate, Sean Brust, who had served 23 years of an 18 years to life sentence for murder and then they later rejected his release in a six to four vote based on letters and information from the victim's family members, according to the, to the lawsuit. ACLU lawyers referred to that as a victim veto. And um, this, this inmate won't get another shot at parole for three more years. In another case, Melissa Grassa served 25 years of a 20 year to life sentence for killing her husband. And the board had voted to release her but then revoked that decision after receiving new information about Brasa that wasn't disclosed to her. And she has no idea what, what that information could be. She just knows that she's in prison for another four years. So as you can imagine, it's just super controversial. On one hand, should a victim's most private and confidential information and a family's thoughts about a crime be released to the public and to the, the the perpetrator. On the other hand, it seems on the face of it to be a pretty clear failure of the system to provide due process. So, yeah, this is I don't know. I I my feeling on that is that the victims have been victimized by these people, and if they're worried about the people that caused them all this harm, took away their family members through murder. Um, if, if it bothers them or hurts them to think of them reading what they're writing, I kind of side with the victims on this. I mean, th this isn't a due process conviction case. These people are seeking to get out of their sentences early and the victims are saying, I don't think they should. I, I just don't think this is an open and shut thing. You don't have rights like you do outside of prison when you're in prison. These are people that are that are serving a sentence where they've been deprived of their freedom and, and their liberty. So so do they have a right to see these statements? It's a tough one. 
I agree. It's tough. I don't know. I don't know. I think I need to, I need to, to understand what, what, what is the process of, of deciding if someone is, is eligible and ready for parole? What, you know, what is the full scope of, of that? Uh, you know, do, yeah, I, I think I need to know more before I can, I can, uh, Go to the me, mats with you on this one, let me, Chris. Let me give you an example, though. So, so say I write uh, my my relative was killed, and I write a note to the parole board saying I have nightmares that he's going to come after me, and and it chills me. I will be right. terrified if he is freed early. I don't want him out, and they don't want the, the person to know that because it gives them some some truck over them. It gives them some power that I. Oh, I'm still terrifying you. I'm still causing you harm. And so should the the felon know that or should that be kept confidential? Yeah, well, I mean, that's an excellent point. On the other hand, you know, what if the letter contains uh, information that's just uh, outright false and, and the, the inmate doesn't have a chance to challenge that at all? So I don't know. I kind of feel like it, it, seem, it does seem unfair to not know why you've been declined parole after they had initially voted unanimously to release you. But, but I, but I obviously sympathize also with, with victims. And um, so I'm very conflicted about that. I, Laura Jane, do you guys have any thoughts? on that? (laughs) (laughs) Don't call on me. I don't want to talk about it. This is Laura Johnson. (laughs) I I totally see. You you do feel like, you know, when you're an accused, you get to see all the evidence and you hear your case in a court of law and you get to know what they're saying about you. So I I do understand that point of view, but that's a really good point. Like you don't want to re-victimize the victim um, and you don't know who the people in jail know that could, you know, try to seek revenge afterward. I, I, not, I would lay it's, it's tough. It's not clean. It's, <laughs> it's not. The, the it's ACLU not. does not have a slam dunk argument here. And I, it'll be interesting to see how this goes. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What does Ohio Congressman Bob Gibbs have to say about House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's continuing demand that House members wear masks in the House chamber? Jane Cahoon, this is Republican Congressman Day on this podcast. We've talked about Dave <laughs> Joyce. We've talked about Anthony Gonzalez. Now we're talking Bob Gibbs. Yes, uh, Gibbs is mad that Pelosi is keeping these masking and physical distancing requirements in place on the House floor, despite the CDC guidance that says fully vaccinated people don't have to do that. So he sent a letter to her and it was signed by more than 30 Republicans, including a few other Ohioans like Troy Balderson's. Troy Balderson, Bob Latta, and Warren Davidson. But it says it's time to update our own workplace regulation. Every every member of Congress has had the opportunity to be vaccinated, and you have indicated about 75% have taken advantage of this opportunity. So he said the Congress has to serve as a model to show the country that we can resume normal life through vaccination. Let's follow the science. Pelosi, however, is concerned that this 75% figure that he cited, you know, just isn't good enough. And her office referred us to a CNN survey of Congress members that that indicated that all House Democrats say they're vaccinated, but only 44.8 percent of Republicans. So I guess she doesn't want a bunch of unvaccinated Republicans going maskless on the on the House floor and possibly spreading the virus. So, um, I mean, the bottom line is not nothing has changed as far as masks being a political issue, unfortunately, and 
you know. I don't Gibbs. know. I mean, Bob Gibbs can walk into his Walmart without a mask, but <laughs> right. he can't go on to the right. House chamber. I, right. I think he's right. got a point here. It's like, okay, the CDC has spoken. They were out on all the talk shows over the weekend explaining that this was based solely on science. You know, it's it's... I wasn't suggesting that Gibbs was making it a political issue. I'm just saying, like, once again, we have Republicans and Democrats, you know, um, tussling over over this. Yeah. And we should just be bringing some common sense to the whole thing. Yes, we should. But we don't see that from (laughs) Congress. You're listening to this week of the CLE. We can do one more. Ohio State University has a new sex scandal involving a masseuse. Or does it, Laura Johnston? I feel like I'm going to be like Layla on this one where I'm like, on one hand this and on the other (laughs) hand that. So Ohio State says yes. The administration had a news conference on Thursday to say that they're releasing this report that had been two months in the making that accuses a therapist of being inappropriate and exploitative. But the therapist actually spoke in return, used her name, and said the allegations are ridiculous. So according to this report, the State Medical Board of Ohio received a complaint all the way back in March 2020 about this therapist. She's a 41-year-old woman from Northeast Ohio, said that she contacted Ohio State football players via social media, offered massage services, and used those massages to initiate sexual interactions, and then demanded payment. So, and, and this ha- began in 2018, continued until 2021, mostly in off-campus housing and hotels. And according to the law firm, we're talking about 117 current and former players and that, uh, that were interviewed, 44 current and former um, – well, sorry, I'm messing that up. 117 current and former OSU players interviewed. They it determined that 83 players either had no knowledge or very limited knowledge of this therapist prior to the investigation. But nine knew about it. Um, they're about, and five admitted to in the interviews they had sexual activity. The therapist says, no, it wasn't five, it was two, and that the players themselves initiated, and then there was no more professional contact after that. They just had a a romantic or sexual relationship. So she's saying she's being railroaded by Ohio State. And I'm not exactly sure what to think. It does feel like Ohio State trying to keep its image pristine did go over the top and really throw her under the bus. We didn't name her until she gave an interview to us and said, hey, no, I want my name out there. This is wrong what they're doing. Um, but, but man, it was a lot of press conference, a lot of stuff for what in the end is not, doesn't feel like it's a huge story. No. And this is something that was completely separate from the university. I mean, no university members are being accused of any, anything wrong. There's no NCAA violations. There's no police investigation as far as I'm aware. And, and so that's the therapist. She said, she said the university is doing everything they can to make me the bad guy and make their kids look like they're innocent and nothing's gone wrong. She says it's the Ohio state university. They know they can steamroll people and get away with it. And if you present a law firm investigation that you say it's two months and hundreds of interviews, then yeah, it's, that's a lot of weight there. Yeah. It seems like a lot of work for, for something that might not have merited it. You're listening to this week in the CLE. Well, that'll do it. I made it through without losing my voice. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Jane. Thank you, Layla. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast. Mm-hmm.